It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, October 28th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting live from the city beautiful Chicago, Illinois. Great to be here and great to be back. It's been a minute. Hi, Chicago. Hello, everyone. Glad to have you here every single day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And we are just honored that you listen. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your family. Let's keep growing together. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day, especially among the kids. It's uh, growing in popularity. It's on demand, no charge. I mean, that's, I think, appealing to people of all ages. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the info is right there. Programming note, I'll be joining Special Report with Brett Baer on that panel tonight. We've got a panel near the top of the show and then again toward the end. That's the 6 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. Here's what we've got cooking on the radio today. Glenn Youngkin will be here in the next segment. He's running for governor in Virginia, and it is crunch time in the Old Dominion. Days away from the election, it is deadlocked. It is a toss-up. We'll get the latest from Glenn Youngkin himself, the Republican in that race. Later this hour, Senator Mike Lee is going to be here. Republican of Utah, he was part of that contentious hearing yesterday with the Attorney General, get his take and takeaways from that hearing, and also his comments on the Democrats' spending plans. We'll have more on that here with some breaking news in just a moment. Megan McCain, a good friend of ours here, she will be joining us. She's got an audio book out. Looking forward to asking her about her departure from The View, news of the day. She's not one to shy away from a feud on social media. She's got a couple going right now. We'll talk about all of that, a little gossip perhaps. Why not? And then an old friend and mentor, John Moody, is out with a new book. I think you'll be interested in it. We will catch up with him in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin the show from Chicago today. Stats, 45.7 million. That's the number of cases confirmed in the United States over the course of the pandemic. Low ball estimate. We've talked about why many times. The death toll of people in this country who died with or from COVID, 741,277. The Dow is up over 100 points at this hour, trading well above 35,000. We'll keep an eye on that and bring you the final number when the markets close back east in 52 minutes. We also have some breaking news. I'll call it a Fox News alert, so we'll play the stinger. But I think it's very much still up in the air. President Biden and the Democrats are celebrating what they are saying is a deal that they have reached on the so-called Build Back Better spending monstrosity, the tax and spend scheme that they want to get passed. And my prediction all along, I'll remind you, and you can go back on the podcast and the archives and listen, I said they're not going to get to $3.5 trillion. They probably won't even get close to that number, but they'll end up somewhere in $1.5 to 2 somewhere in that range. And ultimately, they'll twist enough arms and get it done. That appears to be the trajectory that we are on. 
They really wanted to get a vote done before President Biden headed over to Europe. He's going to go meet with the Pope, then he's going to go to Scotland on some climate change stuff, and they wanted to give him a victory in hand on his way to Europe. It doesn't look like that is necessarily going to happen, although things are very much up in the air on Capitol Hill. Here's what we know. They've rolled out this $1.75 trillion deal. It sounds like the progressives and the moderates, broadly speaking, are on board. Although, again, we don't have a finalized bill itself. And we certainly don't have a CBO score. So hold your horses. But they might have a deal in principle. One of the biggest problems that they've had, though, is trust and sequencing. Where the progressives, especially in the House, they're saying, we are not going to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal which has already passed the Senate. We're not going to go for that. We're not going to vote on it. We'll vote it down if necessary, unless we feel 100% confident in the reconciliation package, which is going to be Democrats only. And they are still having this battle about which one goes first and what is good enough to get the progressives on board. I actually have a few thoughts on that dynamic. And what Pelosi is up against here, and actually a word for Republicans as well. Before I get to that, though, here's what the president said, sort of triumphant, almost declaring victory before there's actually a victory. And again, the timing here is absolutely still very much uncertain. Pelosi wasn't answering questions today. Are you going to vote on the infrastructure bill? Is this agreement on the other thing good enough? She doesn't know. As of this moment, it seems like she doesn't have the votes. But here was Biden before he set off for Europe just uh, earlier today in cut 11. Listen to some of the assertions that he's making. After months of tough and thoughtful negotiations, I think we have an historic, I know we have a historic economic framework. It's a framework that will create millions of jobs, grow the economy, invest in our nation and our people. Turn the climate crisis into an opportunity and put us on a path not only to compete, but to win the economic competition for the 21st century against China and every other major country in the world. It's fiscally responsible. It's fully paid for. 17 Nobel Prize winners in economics have said it will lower the inflationary pressures on the economy. And over the next 10 years, it will not add to the deficit at all. It will re- actually reduce the deficit, according to economists. <laughs> it's just, okay. Uh, you are welcome to believe those things if you want to. We have seen already some initial estimates about Build Back Better, although, again, we don't have a final bill, so it's hard to analyze it in a concrete way. But there have been estimates and projections that it would kill jobs. They want to raise taxes on job creators, but they also want to pretend that it will create jobs. Again, you can believe that if you want to. I am extremely skeptical. He called this fiscally responsible. We've spent trillions of dollars in the last two years on emergency measures because of COVID. We're now battling inflation. They want to spend nearly $2 trillion more dollars. And the president tells you with a straight face, this is fiscally responsible. He also says that it will lower inflationary pressures. Seriously? Just a basic 101 stuff. We're already facing those pressures of inflation. People are feeling it. And the solution is to spend $2 trillion more dollars? Really? That will reduce inflation? 
I know the causes of inflation are complicated and myriad. It's not just this simple direct line, point A to point B. But I can tell you trillions of dollars in new or extra spending is not likely to be a contributor to reducing inflationary pressures. But that's what he said. And he said it will not increase the deficit at all. It will reduce the deficit. That's what they also said about Obamacare, if you'll recall. We don't have a CBO score. We don't have a bill. The likelihood that this massive new spending with new entitlements and new programs is going to reduce debts and deficit. I mean, again, I'll say you can believe that if you want to. I am deeply skeptical. And I think all of you should be as well. And we'll see what the CBO score looks like if and when we'll get one eventually. But we don't know when that will be. One quick point before I break and we get to Glenn Youngkin in the next segment in Virginia. I see both sides on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We've talked about why. I've gone through it on the show. I understand why multiple Republicans in the Senate voted in favor of this bill in the Senate. On the merits, I think it's defensible, not perfect. Nancy Pelosi, though, apparently has at least nine hard no's on her side. Democrats on her side who are saying, no, we will not vote for an infrastructure bill, the bipartisan thing, until we're fully satisfied on Build Back Better, or whatever they're going to call it. She cannot afford to lose even five of those people, let alone nine or more. If you're a House Republican, even if you think that on the merits, this bill is probably worth supporting, it is not acceptable, in my view, to bail out Nancy Pelosi and give her the votes that she doesn't have in this context, on this vote, when this bill is clearly linked to this monstrosity, Democrat-only spending binge that every Republican opposes, to make that easier, to make her life easier, to pass that thing by giving your vote to her on bipartisan infrastructure, I think is a grave mistake and should not happen. I'll break. I'll come back. Glenn Youngkin joins us from Virginia as soon as we return. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. 
It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. We are back. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. So I saw this tweet from Terry McAuliffe, who is running for governor in Virginia. He's the Democrat in the race. Glenn Youngkin's book banning and far-right culture wars have no place in our schools. Next week, Virginia parents will stand up to the politics of hate and division and choose a better way. Now, polling that we've seen and we've reported show that K-12 through parents in Virginia are flocking to Glenn Youngkin, Terry McAuliffe's opponent. Youngkin's the Republican. He's up double digits among parents who actually have kids in school in Virginia. And what's interesting about this tweet from McAuliffe is he starts immediately with a lie. Like the first four words are a lie. Glenn Youngkin's book banning. Even the Washington Post, as we mentioned yesterday, has fact-checked this and called it a lie. And then he just doubles down on it. And then he talked about the far-right culture wars that have no place in our schools, hate, division, etc. This is projection. This is the McAuliffe campaign accusing Glenn Youngkin of what McAuliffe is doing. And joining us now is Glenn Youngkin, longtime businessman and Republican nominee for governor in Virginia. And Glenn, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. We're on a we're on a 10 day bus tour. We're in day six. We're traveling to 50 different locations in Virginia. The crowds are huge. We are absolutely in the polls and the thing. I want to play a couple sound bites from Terry McAuliffe in cut 14 and 20 back to back. He is going after parents and he's making it very clear that his contempt runs deep. Let's listen to those two clips. I am sick of them talking about these issues of critical race theory. We do not teach critical race theory here in Virginia. It has never been taught. It is a racist dog whistle. It is pitting parents against parents, parents against teachers, and they're using our children as political pawns, and it has got to stop. If you win, how are you going to work with those parents who have concerns about how things are being taught in schools yeah. across well, the Let's be very clear here. This is all generated by Glenn Youngkin. This is what MS-13, the Republicans used on Governor Northam four years ago when he was running. They try to find a divisive tactic. All right. So, Glenn, here we heard that parents concerned about racial indoctrination and CRT in schools. They, in fact, are the racists. And when asked how he would deal with parents who have concerns about various issues in schools, he said, well, it's all phony and made up by you. What's your reaction? This is what Terry McAuliffe has to do when he's trying to save a failing, floundering campaign. I mean, the sun is setting on his 43 year political career. And he is just going to the playbook that he wrote. And he wrote this playbook. He's going to his playbook and bringing up racial issues and trying to bring up the most divisive topic he can. And the reality is Virginians aren't buying it. They're just not. You watch parents standing up all over Virginia. I'm winning independence by double digits. They're not buying it. And the reality on top of that is I'm not going to be lectured by a guy who who first called for Ralph Northam's resignation when he couldn't remember whether he was the one in blackface or in the KKK robes. And then as soon as it became politically expedient for Terry McAuliffe, he embraced Ralph Northam and went and campaigned with him. And he's got a guy on the ticket with him. 
yeah. and Mark Herring, who's running with him, Attorney General, who, who admitted to wearing blackface. I mean, Terry McCall is the most hypocritical, bold-faced, lying politician on the planet. And uh, this is all he knows to do. And so this is why we are surging to victory. And let me just let me stand up for parents for a minute. Parents across Virginia have been have been standing up in school board meetings and just asking for their schools to be open five days a week. They've been asking to have visibility in what's being taught in the curriculum. They've been trying to make sure that their children are being taught how to think and not what to think. And the bill that caused all that, that, that Terry McAuliffe finally came out and admitted his heart, the parents have no role and should have no role in their kids' education, was a bill that was going to allow parents to have a say about what, the, what was going to be taught to their child. And it was signed by 18 Democrats, 14 members of the Virginia Black Caucus. And so Terry McAuliffe is calling the Black Caucus members racist if this is what he's really doing. This is the most absurd thing. He's doubling and tripling down on it. And Virginia parents have had enough of it. This is why they're so ready for an outsider. They're so ready for someone who's not tied to all this political garbage, trying to divide people all the time. We are going to get taxes down. We're going to fix our schools. We're going to make our community safe. We're going to crank up our job engine. And we're going to get Virginia moving again. Glenn, I've got to ask you, yesterday, McAuliffe was very excited. Based on some indication, there was a statement that was kind of being read into by a lot of people. Is Donald Trump going to come to Virginia? He sort of indicated maybe he might. And McAuliffe was very excited about this because his whole campaign is just saying Donald Trump a thousand times in a row. There are now reports that Trump doesn't plan to come. Do you have any knowledge? Is, Is your campaign aware of a plan for the former president to come down to Virginia or come up, I guess, from Florida to Virginia on behalf of you, and if he were to show up, would you go to a rally with him? No, there, as far as we know, there's no plans. In fact, we know where we're going to be. We're, we're on a 10-day bus tour, and people can come to our website and see exactly where we're going to be for the next 10 days, and then we're going to go on a fly around on Monday, and then we're going to go to Tuesday and, and be at all the polls, and then on Tuesday night, we're going to celebrate a win in Virginia for a lieutenant governor, win some Sears for our attorney general, Jason Meares. We're going to take back our House of Delegates, and we are going to make a statement that's going to be heard across the country, but particularly in Virginia for the future of Virginia. Glenn, I've been looking at the polls, and I have been literally biting my nails, right? These public polls have it exactly tied. It is deadlocked. It's a toss-up race, which is very exciting. It's, it's an interesting race to be covering, and you and I have chatted, and we're always grateful that you've been generous with your time. You also have internal numbers. So do the McAuliffe people. He does not seem like a confident guy down the stretch. He had a, a really pitiful crowd yesterday. Energy and enthusiasm and turnout is going to be a huge part of this. What are your numbers telling you? And what do you make of his inability seemingly to generate much excitement about himself as a candidate? Well, first of all, we've said all along, the only person excited about Terry McCallish, and it's just showing up because their lackluster, uh, lackluster pre, pre, uh, early voting has just demonstrated nobody's excited about him. Our internal polls are showing us moving ahead. When, when there's a car passing another car on the road for a minute, they're tied, but then one, and we have got a ton. The, the current polls are all a little bit out of date. They're a few days old. And let's just watch this down the stretch as we move out and move out ahead. What's happening at our, at our events is amazing. The crowds are huge. As I said, we're winning. We're winning the independent vote by double digits. We have, we have Democrats walking across the aisle saying we've never voted for Republican before, but we're voting for you. This is a groundswell of, of support, and it's Virginians. It's no longer Republicans against Democrats. 
this is why it is so exciting to watch it happen right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yep, and the voting is on Tuesday. There's been early voting, of course, but Election Day is this coming Tuesday. And at that point, all the polls won't matter. All the trajectories and trends won't matter. The voting will matter. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And we will know soon enough if your optimism is well-placed. I hope that it is. Glenn Youngkin running for governor in Virginia as a Republican. Glenn, good luck. Thank you very much. And we will step aside. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free every day. We turn now to U.S. Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah. He's a senior senator there. Member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was very busy yesterday. Got a lot of attention. Senator Lee, it is great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Guy. Good to be with you as always. So I was watching a fair amount of that hearing yesterday with Merrick Garland, the attorney general, and some of the questions at times blistering from Republicans on a whole variety of fronts. You went after a few different topics during your periods of questioning. What was your intention going into the hearing yesterday? And let's start talking through some of your takeaways from the performance from the attorney general. Yeah, my basic idea was I wanted to get the story directly from him. I wanted to know what made this federal, what made it criminal, what made it appropriate and necessary to issue a memorandum from the Attorney General of the United States himself. Look, at the end of the day, parents showing up to express their discontent with their local school board among neighbors, literally, uh, it's not typically a federal investigative matter. And he didn't answer that question to my satisfaction ever. In fact, his answers to my questions actually deepened my concerns. I went into it with an open mind, hoping he might have some rational, sane ex- explanation. But with every attempted answer, things got worse. For example, he essentially acknowledged while well on the stand that he didn't have a single, not a single example of a threat of violence uh, against a school board member. And in the absence of that, I, I don't know what business he had doing that. <clears throat> Even if he did have that, Unless you're convinced that this is a you know a domestic terror network or something like that, or mm-hmm. that there was an interstate conspiracy to engage in federal crimes, which there isn't, he still shouldn't have weighed in, because those are matters typically for state and local investigative bodies, not federal ones. Yeah, and this is what has been, I would say, perplexing to me, but it's not really that perplexing. And I think your colleague, Senator Sass from Nebraska, also tried to ferret out this point. There is not a universe, this is again based on my interpretation and my understanding of the situation, there is not a universe in which the Department of Justice and the Attorney General and the FBI inserts itself collectively into these local matters 
without this letter from the National School Board Association that we know was collaborating on that letter with partisans at the White House. This seems like this was just a partisan setup where the teachers unions and the education bureaucracy felt like they were under fire and they were being held accountable and they were feeling uncomfortable because people were angry at them. And these are, of course, political allies of Democrats in the White House. And so this scheme was hatched to write a letter talking about domestic terrorism and the Patriot Act and invoking those things and asking for help from the DOJ. And that is precisely what they got from this attorney general. Did anything that you hear yesterday dissuade you from my theory that this was a political hatchet job set up for political reasons? And that is why the DOJ has its fingerprints on any of this in the first place. And guy, not only did nothing I heard yesterday dissuade me from that, uh, everything I heard yesterday convinced me of that. And again, I walked into this with an open mind, wanting, being willing, actually hoping that there'd be some other plausible explanation, hoping, he, you know, throws a, a, a bone by giving us some insight in, into what he was doing. But everything he said made it worse. What I was left with was the unmistakable conviction that, as you say, these groups had been lobbying for weeks and bragging about their lobbying with White House officials over what they were doing. Just think about the timing. This is one of the things I probed into with the attorney general. They issued the memo from the National School Board Association on a Wednesday, the 29th of September. He responded, the attorney general of the United States responded personally with a memo sent out giving directives to all 94 U.S. attorneys across this great land of ours the following Monday. So yeah, one week, I get it. Now, like in my oversight capacity, I, I routinely make requests of federal agencies, including and especially the U.S. Department of Justice. I feel grateful when I get an answer, if I get an answer at all, within two or three months. I, getting an answer, and, and not just an answer from some functionary at the department, but from the department head himself, the Attorney General of the United States, in a weekend is unheard of. That, to me, suggests that there was collusion, there was bargaining. That This, in turn, suggests that the U.S. Department of Justice is being weaponized for partisan political purposes. I don't like that, especially when it's being weaponized against moms and dads who are just concerned about their kids' education. And the term domestic terrorism and domestic terrorist, that was invoked in this letter, the letter that was collaborated on with the White House and that prompted this uh, very hasty reply and action from the attorney general the patriot act as i mentioned was invoked and they're treating this like a national security issue it's not even a federal issue let alone a national security issue and yet that is what they have done how did he try to explain that because to me you know i was asked about this on tv yesterday we were covering it they said what do you think of his answers i said they were bad because there are no good answers here there there isn't a good explanation in the offing and therefore we're getting this this spin that was really sort of feeble and circular. Yeah, it, it was a feeble, circular spin, and it was definitely a spin. And it, it was something that I didn't find persuasive at all. And his reasoning was more or less ipsa dixit. It is because it is. It, mm -hmm. it is this way because I say it is. There, there, there were threats. Can you identify any? I've identified them. And he basically referred back to the National School Board Association letter and to the sources cited in it uh, and was unwilling to withdraw it given that 
the National School Board Association has withdrawn its memo and doesn't stand behind it. So it was it was really disappointing. I expected more from an attorney general who spent decades as a federal judge on the second court, highest court in the land. Uh, the American people deserve better. Because, look, th- this machinery that he controls within the U.S. Department of Justice, it's powerful stuff. It's, um, it's frightening to people. And that here was a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'll make this point one last time, there have been a handful of incidents with threats or fisticuffs or some shoving in no world is that a federal issue, let alone a national security issue. But that is how the attorney general decided to treat it at the behest of a special interest Democratic group working hand in hand with the White House. That is the reality here. And you said it was, you know, a bad performance. You said the American people deserve better. You said you were very disappointed. Your colleague, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, at the tail end of one of his exchanges, he called it disgraceful, and he said that, in his mind, the attorney general should resign. And he also added, thank God you're not on the Supreme Court, sort of a callback to 2016. Do you agree that the attorney general should resign? I think he needs to withdraw the memo. If he refuses to withdraw the memo, I want to hear what explanation he has, because there isn't one right now. If this sort of thing continues, there may come a point where I make the same call. But look, this is this is troubling because these things tend not to be one-off events. These are accretive in nature. By their very nature, they're going to feed off of themselves. And if we don't correct this, it's going to become uh, it's going to avalanche. It's going to snowball out of control. We don't want that. Senator Mike Lee is my guest of Utah, and Senator, I don't think that you would mind at all if I refer to you as one of the OG Tea Party guys. Does that seem fair to you? I'm not sure what that is, but if it's good, I'm bad. (laughs) Okay. In my mind, it's good because, to me, the Tea Party at its best stood for fiscal responsibility, the government living within its means, not having excessive regulation and taxation and trying to get a handle on out-of-control spending. Unfortunately, we have done almost none of those things. There have been some improvements, of course, on the tax side. You were a part of that in 2017. But both parties have fallen down on the job as far as spending is concerned. I know you agree with that. One party is irresponsible. The other party is insane. The Democratic Party is insane on these issues. And as someone, and I associate you with that Tea Party wave, you know, back after Barack Obama was elected, As you look at the build back better, quote unquote, agenda that the president's now talking about, the Democrats say that they might have a deal, although I've seen some members in the House and Senate Democrats saying, well, not so fast. There may not be a deal just yet. As you consider the pieces that are starting to come together, not just on the infrastructure bill, which has some bipartisan support, but this huge reconciliation package that they're talking about, they're bragging. It's, you know, the biggest investment ever. They're excited about the tax increases. They're excited about, you know, upwards of $2 trillion in new spending on top of all the emergency spending and the wasteful stuff that we just did a few months ago, supposedly on COVID. What's your read on all of this? And what do you believe the impact would be on the American people and the economy as well, should the Democrats get their way and pass something that looks remotely like this? Well, first of all, I I, I think it's... um really scary that they're even thinking about doing this. This is a big, bad bill, scaled down or or not. And it, it seems that these depressing economic numbers 
the soaring costs of goods and services, the, the mounting data uh, that, that government itself is to blame for this inflation, uh, or, or whether it's um, attributable to some of the more moderate voices in the Democratic conference. And these things, some combination of them, have all forced President Biden to walk back his latest monstrosity. But, you know, honestly, guys, this bill isn't much better. It's got a $1.75 trillion price tag. It keeps many of the most damaging tax provisions and social restructuring programs. It's something that would quite distressingly uh, bring back uh, a form of general warrants, meaning it would eviscerate the Fourth Amendment for purposes of the IRS. We fought a war over that at the time of the American Revolution. We won that war, and we should be loath to revisit and reverse the gains of that war. So you can put all the lipstick on this one you want, but this thing is still a pig. It's still a vicious pig, a pig that being a pig will eat us if we're not careful. <laughs> a vicious, feral pig. That That's quite an image here, although it might be apropos. You mentioned the weak numbers on the economy. We just had some today, right? GDP growth in the last quarter failed to meet even the diminished expectations. It grew at 2%. Economists were hoping and projecting a 2.5 or so, and they couldn't hit that mark. We've seen softness on jobs. We've seen a labor shortage. We've seen shortages, really, of everything at this point. Inflation costs going up, and the Democrats are literally saying, let's spend trillions of more dollars in new spending, and let's raise taxes on job creators. It, it strikes me as insanity, and yet we heard from President Biden. In fact, I want to just play you the soundbite from President Biden when he uh, gave his statement earlier today before he went off to Europe. He made a number of statements. He made a number of um, assertions about this bill. And let's listen to them together. I played it at the top, but I want to get your reaction to cut 11. After months of tough and thoughtful negotiations, I think we have an historic, I know we have a historic economic framework. It's a framework that will create millions of jobs, grow the economy, invest in our nation and our people. Turn the climate crisis into an opportunity and put us on a path not only to compete, but to win the economic competition of, for the 21st century against China and every other major country in the world. It's fiscally responsible. It's fully paid for. 17 Nobel Prize winners in economics have said it will lower the inflationary pressures on the economy. And over the next 10 years, it will not add to the deficit at all. It will re actually reduce the deficit, according to the economists. All right, Senator Lee. So we heard there that this huge spending thing that the Democrats are going to try will create millions of jobs. It will lower inflationary pressures. It will not add to the deficit. In fact, it will reduce the deficit. And it will help us grow as an economy. What's your response when you hear that? I, I disagree with literally every syllable uh, of that phrase. And, and look, the fact that you get some folks to say, oh, yes, that this will make things better doesn't make it so. As Abraham Lincoln said, if you call the tail of a dog a leg, the dog still only has four legs. <laughs> you don't change the thing simply by renaming it. You don't make this anything but harmful simply by having some PhDs uh, say that it is. We all know what happens when you just print more money. We've experienced that because over the last year and a half, we've been printing money, literally just printing it, to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. We've seen 
Expenses go up on everything from gas to groceries, from housing to health care and everything in between. We know that when government just spends money that it doesn't have, when it just prints money, it makes everything more expensive. This can work out well for a small handful of wealthy and well-connected people, but it really hurts the poor and the middle class. So if he really believes this, I've got a bridge to sell him and a whole lot more than that. <laughs> yep. Fiscally responsible, he says about this. So it's just mind bending. Senator Mike Lee is senior senator from the great state of Utah. He was part of that hearing yesterday, as we discussed with the attorney general. He's all over this issue. We always appreciate your time. By the way, the senator's in cycle. He's up for reelection next year. Just want to throw that out there as well. Senator Lee, always a pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Thank you. Uh, no, the pleasure is mine. It's Lee for Senate.com. There we go. Lee for It's the Guy Benson Show. A few more thoughts on this from yours truly as soon as we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are not about left versus right or moderate versus progressive or anything else that pits Americans against one another. This is about competitiveness versus complacency. Competitiveness versus complacency. It's about expanding opportunity, not opportunity denied. It's about leading the world or letting the world pass us by. Today, with my Democratic colleagues, we have a framework for my Build Back Better initiative. Yeah, President Biden earlier today talking about competitiveness, which is interesting. As we're back here on the Guy Benson Show, one of the provisions, and again, we have not seen a bill, so we don't know exactly what is in and what is out. We have a framework that they've talked about, but one of the provisions that they have openly debated and has been in various iterations of this bill is raising the corporate tax, the business tax, higher than even China's, higher than the average in the industrialized Western world. How is that more competitive? How is increasing the tax burden to create jobs and do business here in America more competitive as opposed to less competitive? They're saying all the things. Oh, it's fiscally responsible. It reduces inflation. It reduces the deficit. It increases competition on the global stage. This really does remind me, in some ways, of the Obamacare pitch, where they just said, oh, it's nothing but positives. There are no trade-offs. Everything's going to be great. Everyone's going to be better. Anyone who says otherwise is lying. This is a panacea, and we've come together, and we've got this, basically, this perfect thing. It doesn't go far enough, of course. We'd love to do a lot more. If we had more votes in the Senate and the House, we would do much more than this. But there are no trade-offs, no downsides. That is silly. That is not realistic. It wasn't true in Obamacare. It's not true on this, but it's the way they're trying to sell it. And they're linking this, obviously. The progressives are in the leadership on the Democratic side. They're linking this to the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which they want to do first. And I'll repeat what I said at the top. Republicans, even if you like on the merits, the bipartisan bill, which is fine, should have no part in throwing a lifeline to Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer on their web counts. Zero involvement. The Guy Benson Show continues with Megan McCain coming up. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. From Chicago today and tomorrow, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Coming to you live from the Windy City, where it is chilly. It's getting to be Chicago weather already. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is available every day for free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. As we begin this middle hour, Fox News alert. The Dow closes up 239 points today to 35,730. I also want to bring you this breaking news. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has been charged with a misdemeanor complaint of a sex-related crime. And I see our friend Janice Dean has been tweeting about this, and uh, she is very pleased. Doing a little bit of a victory dance here again, and she has earned it. Lord knows that's true. Joining us now is another friend of the program, Megan McCain, author of the new book, Bad Republican. It's her first memoir, and it's exclusively on Audible, so it's an audiobook. She has read it with her own voice. She is a friend of ours, and we are very happy to have her here. Megan, hello. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. We are thrilled to have you. I actually have to ask you this question. Why did you decide to go with an Audible exclusive. I know people love audiobooks. A lot of people who bought my book with Mary Catherine Hamm, end of discussion, they bought the audio version. We narrated it, which is, as you know, actually harder than it seems to read all of it and you know, do overs. You can't stumble over anything. People love audiobooks, but some people, you know, prefer to actually have a hard copy or a Kindle or whatever. What inspired you to make this decision to say, no, it's an audiobook in my voice. This is the way we're going to do this. So the people who tend to like things I create tend to be a lot like me, and I have, like, data and research to back this up. And the way I consume, and maybe it's embarrassing to admit, but I consume most of my books through audio and audible, and part of it is I have a one-year-old, part of it is I just live, like, sort of a very kinetic lifestyle. Part of it is like, I just find the moments that I have space where I want to read something. I'm also doing other things like putting on my makeup or driving in the car, getting ready in the morning. And I just thought that, you know, people are really living a different kind of way now and they would like Mm -hmm. this differently. I also thought that, um, So much of my life and my stories, especially the past five years, have been told through, like, the lens of another person. And I really wanted to make really clear that there was no way to misinterpret the stories I was telling or what I was saying. And sometimes you can misinterpret things just in a written form. And I'm a talker and a storyteller, and I just really liked this opportunity, and I just thought it was different. And, yeah, yeah, that's why I chose to do it. And Audible has been incredible to work with. And the response has been, I'm so pleased and happy and, like, just honored, honestly. And everything that you just said, I think, was like totally cogent and reasonable explanation for it. And you said it's maybe embarrassing to admit. I don't think it's embarrassing at all. So many people just read books the way that you do, listening to them. And it's uh, a growing trend, and you're leaning into it. The title is Bad Republican. And first of all, uh, some of these photos that they've taken of you for this photo shoot to promote 
the book. These are just fire emoji photos. I just have to put that out there for the record on the air. I'm very impressed with how great these photos turned out. The title is Bad Republican, and I thought it was so clever because immediately when I saw the title, before I knew anything else about the book, I had initially an interpretation of what that meant. Then I thought about it again. I said, wait, actually, maybe she means it this way. And I was like, well, conceivably, there's a third way that I'm imagining bad Republican might fit with Meghan McCain. And I wonder if that was sort of ambiguousness that was intentional on your part because that term bad Republican might apply to you based on critics or whatever from various different vantage points. Yeah, so much of just like even the marketing with the book has been leaning into what critics and haters have said about me. And I we called it Bad Republican, which it's funny, my agent came up with it because so many things I'm offered to do, if it's like speaking or, you know, whatever, stuff on TV or in media, it's always to be like the token bad Republican on a panel or on a project on a show to be like the <laughs> one conservative out of like 10 million liberals. So like that's the bad Republican. And then when I go into conservative spaces, there's a distrust for me because of my, right. you know, like long storied history of hating Trump and the Trump family hating me and my family back. So there's just like no space that I have a place in where it's where I'm like comfortable and where people seem 100% comfortable with me. Um, so that's it was meant to be tongue in cheek. It's meant to be funny. Um, I I just I just thought it was like easy. It was kind of like like catchy, like hashtag bad Republican. No, and it's perfect. Really Thank you. Thank no, you. no, it, it it fits perfectly. Like maybe give like a little bump or bonus or something to your agent because it's it's genius. It's exactly perfect for you and who you are and your reputation and your sort of because people say, oh well, if you're going to clap back at haters, that's awfully defensive. Well, I mean, you can keep your mouth shut or you can speak out, and you aren't really the type, quite honestly, to keep your mouth shut. So you know, you have the platform. Why not go for it? Yeah, I mean, I always say I'm a lover, not a fighter, but I'm actually a fighter, so watch yeah, what you do to me. Like, I, <laughs> you're a fighter. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I just, you know what, I, I'm 37 years old, I have a child, I'm in a really interesting space in my life, I feel like I've accomplished a lot, and I just feel like I don't have anything to apologize for, and I really wish that society would make more spaces for strong women, because it's still really threatening, it's still something people have a problem with, and then adding, like, being pro-life and bleaching your hair on top of it, and you're basically the most controversial person in the world. And I get that there are people that like to live their life in a safer way. Everybody has their own journey. But for me, like, I'm all fire all the time. I will take the risk. I will gamble. I will take the leap. And I will call out garbage and BS any place I see it. And sometimes it ends up great, like with this book that's doing incredibly well. And then sometimes it ends up poorly. And I'm comfortable with whatever outcome. Yeah. And part of what's gotten a lot of attention about this book bad Republican is your departure, your voluntary departure from the view, right? That's sort of a hostile environment for conservatives. There's no one who's going to deny that, who has eyes and ears. And it's not really something, however, that's done where someone voluntarily on their own accord says, you know what, I think I'm out and walks away from that show. Typically, there's, you know, people are fired and they come or they, you know, they resign. There's some big controversy. You just said, I think I'm done. I know they want to keep you, but you made this decision for yourself and for your family and all of that. And then you have, you know, dished and spilled a little bit of tea in the book about what it was like to be the lone conservative at The View, what that looked like on a day-to-day -day basis. And there were times where you ended up in tears because things were 
said, you know, nasty things and you weren't getting, you know, support from some of the other ladies or even, you know, the team over there. And I just wonder, as you look back on that, have you gotten any pushback from your former colleagues at The View like, hey, we wish you hadn't said these things or have they not really bothered reaching out on that front because they know that ultimately you're going to do your own thing no matter what? Because that's what you did very successfully for them on that show for years. Well, I've talked to Sunny quite a bit. We are good friends, just like legitimately off air. And she sent me the, this wonderful message of support, especially about postpartum anxiety. She knew a lot of what was going on while it was going on, as, by the way, did you. And thank you for never leaking anything to the press, because we are friends off of yep. radio as yep. well. You're um, welcome. You know, I, I literally, so much of my life I do in boxing metaphors. I actually open up the book with two quotes, and one of them is from Rocky Balboa. And I literally just felt like I was on the mat, like, no moss. Like, no moss, you're not going to beat the crap out of me anymore, especially. And I detail, I only talk about the view in one chapter of the book, and I understand why it's getting so much attention because I'm of curious course. about talk show drama as well. I'm curious about media drama. Um, but it just really, it was when I came back from having my daughter, I had a really very difficult childbirth. I had an emergency C-section. I had postnatal preeclampsia, and I was hooked up to a magnesium drip for a week. I Physically and emotionally, I had a really difficult time just getting back to any sense of homeostasis. It was in COVID. My poor sister-in-law had to come over and, like, help me shower and, like, help me eat. And my husband had to help me. And it was very humbling. And then I was diagnosed with postpartum anxiety, um, which is, is like the sister of postpartum depression. And I was having a really hard time functioning in the sense that um, you have so much anxiety, you like love your child so much. And this is how it manifested for me that I was worried that everybody that hated me would like try and kill her or kidnap her. And I could not let anyone else take care of her to like the point that it was, it was immobilizing. And when I finally was able to go back to the show, I took much longer getting back on my maternity leave than I thought my second day back. Um, and I was still really in shell shock. I mean, joy did in this, like now in this clip saying she missed me zero and I had a panic attack and threw up in my dressing room and I go through the whole thing in my last chapter. And it was just mm -hmm. this moment of my life where, I mean, you know me, like, I'm just, I'm a pretty black or white person. And I was like, this is not, this is no longer worth it for me, for myself. But also now I have a child involved in this crap. And like, I'm not going to subject her and my husband to the, to like me having panic attacks at work, because there's no civility to be found with my liberal counterpart. Yeah. And, and on that front, last question about the view here, you know, and, and actually we're both friends with a few of the people that they're now cycling through, kind of auditioning some folks. There's going to be a conservative on that show again. There have been before. There will be again. Whoever they end up choosing at The View, having been there and fought the battles and seen what it's like behind the scenes, what advice would you give to the next conservative or right-of-center woman that they hire on that show? This is this is tough. I've actually been asked this before, and candidly, there have been a lot of women who have auditioned who are reaching out to me, like most of them. And, you know, it's difficult for me because some people that are auditioning, like, you know, our friend Mary Catherine, like, incredibly smart, really, like, amazing reputation has been in this industry a long time. The view is still a different animal because it's very personal. And, like, anything that happens in your personal life is used, and it was used at least in my situation, like for negative gossip and tabloids. And I think I would just tell them um, to keep your cards close, document everything that happens to you and be more like, be more vocal about what's happening in real time than I did. I think I was so, I was going through so much in my life that I, I may like, well, that's, it's not true because I actually complain to executives a lot, but I think I would just tell them that, um, 
you're going to be amazing. You're going to be great. Call me if you need anything. And um, I would honestly say, like, I really hope part of the reason why I wanted to speak out was because I don't want women going back to work after they have babies going through what I did. But I hope maybe speaking out because a lot of times I hear I I run into ex-hosts who have horrible things to say about the show but they do it like privately at parties and I was like I don't live like this you know me Mm -hmm. I mean get like two glasses of wine in me I'll tell you my life story (laughs) maybe not even two yeah maybe maybe like a quarter of one glass and I just didn't (laughs) want to be in a situation where I was a hypocrite if that makes sense where where I I said I I left one way and there was a a different reason but the reason I said I left was true I do prefer living in Washington the Washington DC area than I do in New York for all the obvious reasons yeah and that's where your husband is where your kid is and you know that's where your life is now so I no one's gonna fault you for that you did by juxtaposition talk about your support system of women here at Fox News, where I work, where used to you used to work as well, of course, and we have all sorts of mutual friends on that front. Just a very different vibe from your female friends and colleagues at Fox versus some of what you experienced at The View. I know you've spoken about that a little bit publicly, but you know, with with that cast of characters, you know, Cat Timp and Janice Dean and Dagan McDowell, and the list goes on. I think that's something meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I I loved my time at Fox. I did not leave in an acrimonious way. I left because my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer and I wanted to help him. And I just, when so much of my life was happening that was like chaotic and intense, I mean, I have a, I text these women, like I'm not exaggerating, like 50 times a day. And I just, <laughs> I don't know, having a woman like Kennedy where I say, oh my God, my dad has been diagnosed with brain cancer and she comes over within like 20 minutes. I mean, sisterhood, that's unusual, I yeah. think, for for women in this industry and media. But, but that's very Kennedy. Reason, that's very Kennedy. Very Kennedy. I know. And she brought over whiskey, whatever. But I think that it's just... um <laughs> I think there's a sisterhood. I really think, you know, I have nothing but positive things to say about Fox. I am not joining Fox, by the way. People are interpreting this as me being like, I'm like coming to Fox News. I am not. I have not like signed anything or been offered anything. So just putting that out there. Um, But I just really wanted to point out that like I've worked in environments where women support each other. And then I've worked in environments that were the total opposite. Last question. And we have about two minutes left, if that. You are not afraid to mix things up, including with people that you've known for a very long time. And just in the last few weeks, you've had some pretty critical things to say about Joe Biden. And you've known him and family friends. You're like, I don't know who this guy is anymore. And then Lindsey Graham, you came out saying, whoa, don't pretend like, you know, you're speaking on behalf of our family, even though he and your dad were such close friends in the Senate. Talk about that where it's it's got to be strange where you know someone so well and yet you feel like a brushback pitch is necessary. I hate it. I hate, especially this recent thing with Lindsey Graham. I mean, I I don't know if I could hate it more. It's been horrible. And I just feel like he, you know, he had some things to say about uh, some, some, you know, memories I have of my life uh, that apparently his memory of my life is different than the experience I had living my life. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to speak negatively of people who at one point in time were close with my dad. I, but I also will defend myself and I will defend my work and I will defend my life. And um, he doesn't get to speak for me. And like, he's not a spokesperson for Megan McCain nor the McCain family. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go like too deep into it because honestly, it's just been extremely emotionally taxing to have this happen. Sure. I was, and I would like to say also that I made the second move. I never ever would have brought something like this public in my life because I think it's distasteful and just bizarre and gross, but I will defend myself if like, you know, 
if it's like I the need Trump to. line. You're a total yeah. counterpuncher, counterpuncher <laughs> only, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I am. Megan McCain, author of the book Bad Republican. I don't want to push you too hard on it, and I, you know, but sometimes you say it. You know, you know the Bidens too. You're like, no, this is not this Biden. I'm not on board for this Biden. And you can read all about all these things that we've been talking about. You don't really read it; you hear it in her own voice. Bad Republican is the audio book exclusively on Audible. Megan McCain, author, TV personality, mother, wife, friend. Awesome to have you here. Let's do it again. Thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful speaking with you. You bet. Talk to you soon, and we'll see you off air. I'll get you more than one quarter of a glass of wine. I promise you that. Megan McCain on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Join me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. Looking forward to that. You may have seen this. I laughed out loud at this senator mitt romney has his halloween costume and it's basically breaking the internet he is ted lasso right he's the character ted lasso from the show we've talked about it here on the air charming show season one in particular season two sort of petered out a little bit i in fact i have several episodes to catch up on i'll get to it eventually but he just nailed it he looks the part he acts the part. It's very on brand for him just in general, sort of like this aw shucks, wholesome American guy. I also sort of like the twist that Jason Sudeikis, the actor who plays Ted Lasso, back when Sudeikis was on Saturday Night Live, he played Mitt Romney during the uh, 2012 campaign, I believe, that era. And so he had his Mitt Romney impression, and now Romney's dressed up as the guy that Sudeikis plays. For Halloween, there's one scene where he goes into Kirsten Cinema's office and he delivers cookies. He calls it biscuits for the boss, which is straight out of the show, Ted Lasso. But referring to Cinema as the boss is actually pretty good trolling. He had another post on social with Cinema saying she's one tough cookie. That is just trolling. He's got the mustache. He's got the sweater with the logo on it. He's got a soccer ball. Just fantastic stuff. You love him or hate him. A-plus work for Mitt Romney on this Halloween costume. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. I want to give you a little tease on something. I'll be on special report tonight. I've mentioned that. I'm on the panel. One of our topics is going to be the Virginia governor's race. We had Glenn Youngkin on in our first hour. We will replay part of that interview in our next hour in case you missed some of it. Of course, all of it is available on the podcast for free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. There's a brand-new Fox News poll coming out from that race. Fox had Terry McAuliffe up by, what, four points or so, four or five points in their last poll. We will have our new poll out tonight, 
and it will be debuting on Special Report. And I'm just going to say, you might want to tune in for this. Very interesting stuff, and we'll be discussing it on the panel. With that, let's get to our next guest. Brian Riedel is Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's a budget wonk. He knows the numbers inside and out. He's been spending the day on Capitol Hill chatting with people that he knows and sources. And, of course, it's been an extremely eventful and busy day up on Capitol Hill. Almost all of the action over on the Democratic side, but there are some Republican elements to all of this as well. And Brian joins us. It's good to have you back, Brian. Glad to be back. Thanks, Guy. Oh, what can you tell us, if there's anything noteworthy or interesting that you've gleaned from your day on Capitol Hill, feel free to share it here. I also relatedly will ask you, and I've made this point earlier in the program, I was sort of, you know, uh, take it or leave it on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I know you are more against it than I am. I think that there's an okay case from a Republican perspective to maybe vote for it in the Senate, as a number of senators did on the GOP side. I am very concerned because these two bills, the Democrat-only bill and the infrastructure bill, are now obviously linked. That's the way Democrats are playing this. The Democrats have a vote problem right now, a whip count problem. I just don't understand why any Republican, even if on the merits they believe that the bill is worth supporting, why they would give Nancy Pelosi a vote that she desperately needs for the bipartisan infrastructure bill because of the sequence and the cascade effect that she needs to happen to make all this work for her side. So I'll just put that out there as my opinion and let you react to that, plus whatever else you're hearing on the Hill today. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, the Republicans that I'm talking to, at least, don't. I haven't spoke to all of them, and there are some moderates who might go the other direction, but there's a, there's a sense of don't, don't throw the Democrats a life raft. To the extent that the two bills are linked and have to pass together, the more that moderates bail out the infrastructure, uh, Republican moderates bail out the infrastructure, then there's no more leverage on the reconciliation bill. And so, you know, the conservatives that I'm talking to are saying, don't, don't throw them a life raft when they're, when they're hanging themselves. You know, also, the members that I talk to, this is lighting a fire on, uh, on under them on broad deficits, spending, and fiscal responsibility. Some of the members that I've been talking to today and over the past week have frankly said that the Republican Party has been terrible on fiscal responsibility over the last few years. Well, yeah. And they're looking at this more as a legacy issue, that if they don't turn this around, this is what they're going to be remembered for when they leave office. And so, yeah, on one level... Hold talk on, hang cheap, on, let me... But let me yeah, let me jump in, though, because I'm glad that they're saying that what concerns me and I think bothers people. And, and you see this on the left as a criticism of conservatives and a criticism of Republicans that I think is actually fair in a lot of cases where it's like, oh, this is a legacy issue and we can't let this happen. And then sort of come to Jesus. Oh, wait, I, I see the light again. Uh, you know, we, we failed. Let's do it. But they do that when the Democrats are in charge. When they're in charge, when the Republicans are in charge, it's like that new religion kind of goes away again. That's my concern. Absolutely. This is something Republicans do when they're out of power. And then when they gain power, the focus becomes how can we shovel benefits to people, regardless of the cost who got us elected. Under Bush, it was the tax cuts, no child left behind, a Medicare drug entitlement, big farm subsidies, Trump increased spending. And so 
absolutely talk talk is cheap and there there have been conversations about about that and frankly republicans haven't earned trust on this issue i'm not saying that you, that you or anybody of your listeners should should take that as a given that republicans are going to be better sure. but the discussions are happening and there there is a realization too that they're going to have to try to do this as bipartisan as possible if they want to rein in spending. That if you try to do this by yourself, the entire Democratic attack machine starts running ads of you throwing grandma off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And so there's really a push that they got to find a way to find any common ground with any Democrats in the Senate no. to work on these issues. Good luck. Good luck. And so let's talk about the news of the day. The economy growing in the last quarter at a really tepid rate, 2%. Missing expectations that had already been lowered. The projections were low. The real number came in lower. I think it's amazing with also stories about inflation, all this stuff. You just have these Democrats saying, oh, well, that's a shame. Uh, full speed ahead. Let's spend trillions and raise taxes on job creators and businesses. I mean, that is literally what they're doing. I keep saying it because it's just so insane from a policy perspective. I have to say it out loud over and over again just to remind people this is the context in which they're doing this. This is the backdrop against which they are doing all of this. And so you've got that information, the tepid, underwhelming economic growth, really disappointing there. Then I saw a story about McDonald's hiking prices to offset wage increases and supply costs. Surprise, surprise. They always tell us, no, no, that won't happen. Or that's, you know, that's some right wing economic fairy tale. No, that's just basic economics and it's happening at the dollar store it's happening at mcdonald's like they can spin and talk and have whatever fable that they want out there and often the media will repeat it but reality is reality brian and this is what we're seeing this is the reality as they consider in my view more destructive policies the current status quo is quite unacceptable and that's why the american people if you look at the polling aren't happy they shouldn't be i mean if you dive into the gdp numbers demand is doing fine the problem is supply it's production it's bottlenecks and the the main story of the gdp numbers is that inventories were drawn down because again production couldn't keep up so people were basically drawing down the inventories of what's already out there and imports are rising quickly and exports are dropping which means american production can't keep up and people are just buying down inventories and trying to buy as much as they can from foreigners what that means is inflation it means demand is outstripping the bottleneck of supply and the democrat solution right now is to add more demand it's to do another big spending bill to try to add more demand well when supply can't keep up it's an inflation bill (laughs) in the short term you're not going to get new new prosperity or productivity you're just going to get pure inflation because supply can't keep up with demand and then when the tax when the tax hikes kick in then you start to get the the sluggishness from that point forward let's on a related note talk about this Build Back Better plan. Biden came out, and I played this clip now twice on the show today. I got Senator Lee's response to it as well. Biden, before he went off to Europe, said this is a job creation bill. It will create millions of jobs. It's fiscally responsible. It will not add to inflationary pressures. It will decrease uh, inflationary pressures, and it will decrease deficits as well. To which you say, Brian Riedel, what? Um, even if you assume that it's going to raise $2 trillion in taxes, uh, as they claim, and there are so many gimmicks, it's not going to come close. 
what they did is they counted 10 years of revenue uh, for the pay-fors, and then they have a lot of the, the spending policies have fake expiration dates as early as yep. one year. Child tax credit expires after one year. Health care expires after three years. Um, child care expires after six years. The White House openly admits in their document, we intend these policies to be permanent, but we're only counting the first couple years of the costs against 10 years of revenues. So ultimately, they're hiding $2 trillion in additional costs through a gimmick. So ultimately, this isn't a $2 trillion spending bill. This is a $4 trillion spending bill. They're just not counting half the costs. Yeah, and this is what they do. It's not surprising. I want to play you a soundbite. This is from Jen Psaki at the White House. And a circle back was asked by a reporter about uh, Christmas gifts and uh, the rising costs of things and the supply chain disruptions. Here's what she said. Let's listen to cut nine. What's your message to Americans who are still so worried about getting their Christmas gifts on time? Halloween, is this going to be happening at a fast enough pace? Well, I think our message is uh, that, one, what's happening right now, uh, and I wish I had the chart, but we'll give it to all of you afterwards, is that uh, so many people across the country are purchasing more goods online. Maybe some of it is from habits that developed during the pandemic when people weren't leaving their homes. Some of it is because we've seen an economic recovery that has been underway for the last nine months where five million more people are working. The unemployment rate has been cut in half. And that is leading to a massive increase in volume. That's what's happening at ports. But what we would tell people is we are addressing and attacking the supply chain issues, even with the increased volume, which is the root cause here. The root cause is the increased volume, and they have their root cause theories on immigration, the border crisis as well. But this goes back sort of to what you were just talking about, Brian, and the way that they're trying to frame some of this stuff. I just had to chuckle a little bit at this idea that sort of like, oh, we're just blindsided that so many people are now buying things online. It, it's not, this is not like 2004 or something, right? This is 2021. People have been moving in this direction inexorably for years at this point. And I understand the point about people staying at home for a while, but what do you make of that explanation there from the White House podium? Yeah, I mean, we've had prosperity before. We've had booms before. You know, before the pandemic started, the unemployment rate was 3.5%, 50-year right. low. The economy was growing rapidly. I don't remember being told that supply can't keep up then. Uh, we were doing just fine with low inflation. So, you know, to say that this is just something that happens when the economy is growing and people buy things, I think is, is really short-sighted and a little absurd. We, and, and, you know, we, and we're, we're kind of told this when this happens sometimes under Democratic presidents. I remember, you know, when Jimmy Carter was president and being told that we just have to learn to live with less and accept it. And then Reagan came along and said, no, we can, we, with smart economic policies, we can be prosperous and afford things. And well, and look, I would be, I would be delighted if the Biden presidency ended up the way that the Carter presidency did, not for the country, but the light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's, we had that happen in 1980 and 1981. We'll see if we see a replay coming up ahead of 2024. Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, longtime budget wonk guy on Capitol Hill. Always appreciate it, Brian. We'll step aside. Stay with us. Back. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Here on The Guy Benson Show, glad to have you all here with us. I saw this on social media earlier in the week, and I meant to get to it yesterday. We just got 
overwhelmed with content and news. But I just want to put it out there because it has been extraordinary to watch what the left is doing to Senator Kirsten Sinema, who is a Democrat from Arizona, of course. She's more moderate. She campaigned as a moderate, promised to be a maverick and a moderate. And they all said, yes, yes, good, let's elect her. And now she's actually weirdly governing the way that she promised. And I think a lot of these progressives and liberals were like, oh, well, they all say that, right? They all campaign as moderates if they have to in these red or purple states, but ultimately they vote for us and they vote with us and they do what needs to be done. That's what they're used to. They basically are willing to tolerate the appearance of moderation so long as you don't actually live that out in real life when push comes to shove. But she's been living it out. Very angry about that. Chasing her into bathrooms and filming her and all this harassment at airports and on airplanes. It's just been really over the top. And the pressure campaign, you know, they were making fun of her on SNL. The news media hounds her constantly. And I saw a tweet from NBC News from their official news account. This was at NBC News. They were highlighting an op-ed or an opinion piece from one of the many offshoots of NBC. And I found it interesting that they were amplifying this opinion piece from the official Twitter account of NBC News. This was not the opinion section or MSNBC or what have you. This was NBC News. And the piece that they amplified was, is Arizona's Kirsten Cinema bad for bisexual Americans? And the piece that they linked to is just hot garbage. It's by someone I'd never heard of who said that cinema has shifted from a bi icon to an unreliable centrist and a self-absorbed democratic turncoat. Now, what's interesting is she campaigned as a centrist, which would mean she would not be a reliable vote for the progressive agenda at all times. That's sort of how she presented herself to voters and got elected very narrowly in a purple state. But they demand fealty. And if they don't get it, they gang up. And they try to make someone's life miserable. And this is what they've been doing. So look, people write garbage takes all the time on the internet. It doesn't need to be the subject of a radio segment on a national show, right? I understand that. The interesting thing to me here, and again, the crux of this is maybe as a high-profile bisexual woman, she's bad for bisexuals everywhere because we don't like what she's doing. On a political issue. I mean, it's just like, it's such weak stuff, but they're going straight for the jugular on identity, right? The obsession on the left with identity, using identity as a weapon, really is gross. And it's exhausting. But it's so predictable. It happens constantly. And anyone who has ever crossed the left or disagreed with the left on any issues, if they are part of what the left believes ought to be their coalition... So if you're a person of color or a woman or LGBT or what have you, an immigrant. There's a lot of us out there who think differently and we get abused for it because honestly, some of them truly believe that they are entitled to our thoughts, to our minds, to our beliefs, to our ideology, just by virtue of our identity, which I think is just poison. I have rejected that toxic mindset for years. I do it very publicly and very proudly because it's wrong. But they try to use it as a weapon, and that's what's happening in this op-ed. Like, oh, you're a bad person. You don't represent all of us. No one represents all of anything, by the way. It's like, oh, are you a representative of the, of the entire blank community? No, no one is, ever. That's not a realistic thing. It's not how people are. We're individuals. We are not 
little buckets of people that are monolithic and we all look up to one person and hold out one person. This is not how humans work. Have they ever met humans? I sometimes ask myself, but it's not really the point. The point here is to bully and harass and to otherize and to punish, frankly. This really low-class op-ed gets written on some affiliate website somewhere for NBC. Fine. It's bad. I probably would have never seen it. If not for the fact, and this is coming back to my point, that the official NBC News account, whoever runs that, they decided, aha, this is something that we would like to put out into the universe in a more high-profile and amplified way. So the news division, NBC News, tweeted this out from their opinion section, and they made that choice. I find it an interesting choice. I find it a telling choice. And if you want me to cut to the chase, NBC News is populated with liberal Democrats. They want to see all of this spending and taxation happen because they are liberal Democrats. They are angry that Kirsten Cinema is not doing the thing that they expect her to do as a fellow liberal Democrat, even though she's relatively moderate. And therefore, she's sort of open season. She's fair game for low blow, nasty attacks. And if that means pushing a crazy, dumb op-ed from some website people haven't heard of from the official NBC News Twitter account, then so be it. Because it's part of the team. NBC News is on the team. And they want to make sure that Kirsten Cinema understands that there are some requirements to remain on the team. Am I being too cynical about that? Too simplistic? Maybe. But I kind of doubt it. Just a hunch. I know these people. We see how they operate. And we know the media. I mean, my goodness, it's not subtle. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up on this Thursday from the city of Big Shoulder, Chicago. Stay with us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Thursday from Chicago. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the ways to listen live there. Big interviews posted there. And the podcast, of course, on demand, free of charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp, delicious, refreshing, and they are now introducing in limited states variety packs where you can buy one pack and try all of the different flavors. There are four of them. That has just been announced, and I am pretty stoked about it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can order online. Of course, this is for listeners 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. We are joined now by John Moody, who is a mentor, a friend. He helped me get my start at Fox News. He's also author of a new book. Of course they knew. Of course they. It's fiction, but barely. And he's with us now. John, it is so great to have you here. Thanks for joining. Hey, Guy, great to be talking to you. And uh, yeah, barely fiction. That's a new category. 
<laughs> yeah, it is. And it really applies to this book, which is technically not nonfiction. But as you read along, it is hard to miss the rip from the headlines plot lines and some very familiar characters who are just half a step away from real life. Give our audience just the elevator pitch on, of course they knew, of course they. Sure. Uh, of, of course, they knew refers to the Communist Party of China, uh, who knew very well that there was a disease that had broken out in Wuhan, uh, but because they created it. They created it at the Wuhan Virological Laboratory and allowed it to escape. And the first thing they did was ignore it. They told everybody there, don't, don't talk about this, it'll upset people. And then they shut everything down in Wuhan, and they literally welded people into their own apartments with, with welding tools on the doors. And some people died because of that. But they didn't stop people from Wuhan from getting on international flights and taking the virus around the start of it. Uh, it affected the whole rest of the world. I take a, a little bit of time to talk about what happened in Italy, which was the right. uh, first and worst hit uh, European country. And then, of course, it came to our country because we weren't ready for it. and We didn't know what to do. Right. You've got characters in China. You've got characters in Italy. You've got characters here in America. And as you were going through the process of writing this book, talk about those interesting distinctions and really the blurred lines between fiction, where you have to, if you're writing a novel, keep it somewhat detached from reality, but still very much grounded in this horrible reality that we've all experienced for the last well, better part of two years. Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I think that 2020 was a, a year unlike any other year uh, in history, um, and and not just for the United States, but for other countries around the world. This pandemic um, is was and is uh, something that we we just didn't know what to do uh, at first. And so everybody just shut the, shut down their businesses. They huddled together in their homes, but not too close together. Uh, you know, and at the same time, in the United States, we had these social protests over the summer of last year. And I have nothing against social protests as long as it's peaceful and legal. But when it turns into uh, looting stores and burning police cars, it's no longer a social protest. It's a riot. Right. Right. So we had that to worry about. And then we had the, the presidential campaign and election and post-election, which I think was so raucous and so uh, undignified that people were a little bit nervous about whether our democracy needed to be changed, needed to have some, some tweaks. And, you know, that's something that we can do with amendments, but it's not the kind of thing you want to do with your entire country and its democracy and its lifestyle. So I tried to weave these three things together. Uh, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a novel, but um, you know, a lot of people will recognize what I was writing about. Oh, yeah. And I think you're right to say a lot of folks were spooked by that confluence of events. Any one of those things that you just mentioned, right, those three factors would be relatively spooky, I think, to an average person. When you have all three of them happen in the span of one calendar year or just a, really a few months, it can be extremely disorienting. It can be destabilizing. And that's really the thrust of this book by John Moody. Of course they knew. Of course they. John, I also want to ask about your background. Uh, before you were at Fox for many years, you were a journalist and you covered international affairs. You traveled all over the world. I had a great privilege a few weeks ago having dinner with you and your wife, Adam, and I were delighted to spend some time together. And you were telling us some of the stories throughout your career. I wonder, as you look at China in particular and the CCP, and I know that you were in Moscow, you were all over the world, but just taking a step back, are you as surprised as I am 
that given how terrible, almost cartoonishly, over-the-top terrible, the conduct of the CCP has been over the last two years, that they are not being treated as an international pariah state, even though I think they absolutely deserve to be. You can just go down the list from COVID lies to Hong Kong to the Uyghurs and genocide, and, and it goes on and on. And while there has been some tisk-tisking and, and certainly certain statements that have been made and certain flags that have been planted, overall, it's kind of like we're just going on as normal. Is that surprising to you? Uh, to be honest, no. Uh, Oscar Wilde said nothing succeeds like excess. And I think that what Xi Jinping and the Communist Party of China have realized is uh, if you're going to lie, tell a big lie. And there's, there's even big. a word for that. In, there, there's even a word for that, Da Wangyan in Chinese. And that's what people, be, you know, in the privacy of, of, well, not even their own homes because those are bugged, but are saying to each other on the streets, it's, it's all a big lie. Um, Xi Jinping has figured out that if they weren't going if to, if the rest of the world wasn't going to catch us on uh, intellectual property theft, if they weren't going to catch us on hacking into other people's governments and private companies, if they weren't going to call us out for what we're doing to Hong Kong, bringing it back into the orbit, if they're not going to call us out for what we're doing to the Uyghurs, which is genocide, and if they're not going to call us out for, for overflights over Taiwan in its, in its territorial waters, let's just keep going. I mean, mm. why, why stop now? And, you know, it's it's uh, it's just the the constant failure of the rest of the world to call out an aggressor, a criminal empire and uh, a party that is only interested in maintaining its power. That's what the Communist Party is all about in China. You know a lot about Russia and modern Russian history. You were there covering a lot of it. What do you make of some of these joint war games or at least joint military exercises being conducted? between the Chinese military and now the Russian military as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the, it's the uh, uh, um, obvious uh, look at the, at the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They don't like each other, the Russians and the Chinese. Each thinks that the other are barbarians. But anything to bring America down, anything to make America even weaker than we already are, uh, is of, of mutual interest to them. So, sure, they, they can play some you know, war games together, but they're not giving away any military secrets to each other because they're saving their military secrets to use on each other. Do you get the sense that we're sort of whistling past the graveyard a little bit here at home, where you've got other countries, hostile countries, really focused on taking us down a peg or two or more? It seems like so many of our discussions and debates here in the United States are, shall we say, frivolous at best. Well, Guy, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're, you're maligning the president. I mean, he's been very busy doing a gender equality program, <laughs> and he's been, he's been really busy with this infrastructure program, which people in his own party are telling him is garbage and not enough. But, of course, you know, he's the president. He knows what's going on. He's, he's a smart guy. Um, so, yeah, of course we're whistling past the graveyard. There are people out there and countries out there that hate us, and we can't understand why. Because we're trying to be nice. We're trying to have gender-neutral bathrooms. I mean, after all, what more do you want? And the Chinese are just going, okay, keep going. We love it. Um, Americans have become so self-idolizing and so insular in the way they view the world. They don't even view the world. They just view the 50 states. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a point after which it starts to bite. And it has bitten now, and we now have a government and a, a majority party that thinks that you know these kinds of issues that they're toying with 
are more important than our national defense and getting things back in order with our production and with our social with our national security. Mm-hmm. And there's so much self-flagellation that happens as well. Talking about that insularity where we're just obsessed and inward looking. And there's a lot of people in this country who appear to think that we are just as rotten and awful as our enemies do, which is always disconcerting. John Moody, last question for you. You spent some time covering the Vatican. You mentioned the president. He's going to be on his way over to Europe. He's going to be visiting with the Pope. There were some eyebrows raised a few days ago when a planned broadcast of a meeting between the Pope and the president was sort of abruptly canceled by the Vatican. Do you have any insight or theory into what happened there? I don't have any insight. I do have a theory. Uh, you will probably remember, Guy, that um, a couple of days, two days ago, uh, Jen Psaki, the uh, White House press secretary, got a little bit uh, uh, unhappy when she was asked a question about abortion, whether President Biden was going to bring it up. And, uh, you know, the the answer that she gave was flippant enough and dismissive enough that I'm sure it reached the Vatican. And it's entirely possible that the Vatican, who you know, which is manned by extremely smart people, uh, said, OK, you want to talk about abortion? You, know, you, you want to tell us how to do abortion issues? Maybe we'll just cancel that live shot. Hmm. Interesting, especially coming from a president who spent a whole career at least saying we shouldn't have taxpayer dollars go for abortion. And then he decided to run for president in the modern Democratic Party. He had to flip flop on that multi-decade conviction, quote unquote. And of course, that's a conviction that flies directly in the face of his faith. And he's going to be going to meet with the pope. So uh, that very well could be onto something there from John Moody. I would not be surprised at all. His new book is Of Course They Knew, Of Course They. It's available on Amazon and elsewhere. And John, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Uh, We're very excited about your success with this book. And I am just personally grateful to all the help that you have afforded me throughout my career. It does mean a lot. Guy, I was never prouder than seeing you on the air and doing this show, and you're doing a great job. Keep it up. That's very kind of you. John Moody on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. And we are back here on the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this announcement from Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida earlier. He has said unequivocally there will not be a mandate for the COVID-19 vaccine for children and for school kids in the state of Florida. We've already seen a preemptive mandate out in California. They announced that before even all the teachers were required to get their vaccines, even though they're adults with a much higher risk profile than kids, which is infinitesimally small. We've learned that over and over again, but that is now a new litmus test. I think that we're going to see and a huge fight. And we got into it a little bit with Dr. McCary yesterday and Dr. Sapphire the day before. What are the ethics? What is the science? What is the data behind vaccines for kids? And then the separate question of mandatory vaccines for kids on this virus. There are plenty of vaccines that I think should be mandatory for kids and are. The question is, is this one of the diseases that merits that kind of heavy-handed government intervention? And I think... The verdict so far is mixed at best. And what they've done down in Florida 
is they are being, again, the un-California. And DeSantis coming out and saying, no, this will not be happening in Florida. And I think that's the right thing to do. I also had to get a kick out of this fact check from PolitiFact. PolitiFact is one of these fact checkers. It's a Dem-leaning organization. Maybe not officially Democratic-affiliated, but it might as well be. And they will call out Democrats from time to time, but they are notorious for propping up Democrats and Democratic narratives. And one of the ways that they do this, and it's just a classic from PolitiFact, is they fact-check a statement from a Republican, which is accurate, but they decide that they need to add additional context that makes it something other than accurate. right? So they can't just rate it true. So in this case, it is Ron DeSantis in Florida. He said this, the nation reported adding 194,000 jobs in September, and Florida accounted for 84,500, which is obviously a very impressive number. Guys like DeSantis and Abbott, they're saying, hey, the economy is not great right now under President Biden. The recovery is not what it needs to be. But in our state, we are the engine driving the extent to which the recovery is happening nationwide. I know that Joe Biden keeps attacking those states in particular and those leaders in particular. In some ways, he should be thanking them for ensuring that the overall jobs numbers and growth numbers in the United States aren't far worse. But that's not how Biden operates. It's not how politics goes, of course. So DeSantis is making sure people understand, here's the overall job growth in the United States. Here's what we account for. And then PolitiFact says, the numbers are real, but they aren't really comparable. And then they get into basically political spin and contextualizing. Right? If you're a fact checker, the question should be, Did the numbers used by DeSantis stack up in terms of reality? Are they accurate numbers, yes or no? And they immediately out of the gate admit the numbers are real. But I think they can just stop right there. They can't help themselves because this is what they do. By the way, since we're talking about Florida, have you noticed all of the headlines just all over the place with the media doing segments and Tweets from news organizations about how Florida now has the lowest case rate in the country on COVID. Oh, you haven't seen those? Oh, do they not exist? Oh, they don't exist. This has gotten far less attention. When Florida was getting hit by that horrible wave, as were other places, just a few months ago, right over the summer, the seasonal thing, the headlines were everywhere. They were ubiquitous, and the story was Ron DeSantis did this. Set aside the fact that Florida actually had pretty good vaccination rates. In fact, by far the best vaccination rate of any state won by Donald Trump in 2020. They were right in the ballpark in terms of vaccination rates as a bunch of other blue states. But because of the seasonality and other factors and just the fact that they all hate Florida and hate Ron DeSantis and they're scared of him, they were just beating the drum on the cases and the hospitalizations and all of it in Florida and pinning it on Ron DeSantis. Well, now the wave has subsided. We've seen an uptick in cases elsewhere, as predicted. Florida has now dropped to the very bottom of the list. And strangely, the attention has dried up. Does Ron DeSantis get credit for that? I'm not sure he deserves credit or fault for either of them. You can talk about individual policies. I think there are things to praise. There are some things to criticize with DeSantis in my book, even though I generally like him. He's not above criticism for crying out loud. 
But now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, let's not uh, look at that so much anymore. They're certainly not going to give him credit for it. And I see one of the big talking points on the progressive left these days, and of course in the media, is, well, maybe Florida's doing okay economically, but does DeSantis really deserve credit? It's just the game that's played. He's at fault for anything bad, even if he's not at fault, or even if it's just made up. They've made up a lot of things about him. But when things go better or things are going well, he doesn't deserve the credit. It's just a political game. It is politics all the way down. And it's so obvious, right? They're not really hiding the ball very much, if at all. It's glaring. It's right in front of us, which is why I'm talking about it. I just want to point it out because I think it is noteworthy and instructive. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour from Chicago here on the Guy Benson Show today. Earlier on the program, actually at the very top of the show in our first hour, Glenn Youngkin joined us. Republican candidate for governor in Virginia. We are just days away from that election. Of course, a lot to talk about in that campaign. Here's my discussion with Glenn Youngkin. I want to play a couple sound bites from Terry McAuliffe. In cut 14 and 20, back to back, he is going after parents and he's making it very clear that his contempt runs deep. Let's listen to those two clips. I am sick of them talking about these issues of critical race theory. We do not teach critical race theory here in Virginia. It has never been taught. It is a racist dog whistle. It is pitting parents against parents, parents against teachers, and they're using our children as political pawns, and it has got to stop. If you win, how are you going to work with those parents who have concerns about how things are being taught in schools? Let's be very clear here. This is all generated by Glenn Youngkin. This is what MS-13 the Republicans used on Governor Northam four years ago when he was running. They tried to find a divisive tactic. All right, so Glenn, here we heard that parents concerned about racial indoctrination and CRT in schools, they in fact are the racists. And when asked how he would deal with parents who have concerns about various issues in schools, he said, well, it's all phony and made up by you. What's your reaction? This is what Terry McAuliffe has to do when he's trying to save a failing, floundering campaign. I mean, the sun is setting on his 43-year political career, and he is just going to the playbook that he wrote, and he wrote this playbook. He's going to his playbook and bringing up racial issues and trying to bring up the most divisive topic he can. And the reality is Virginians aren't buying it. They're just not. You watch parents standing up all over Virginia. I'm winning independence by double digits. They're not buying it. And the reality on top of that is I'm not going to be lectured by a guy who, who first called for Ralph Northam's resignation when he couldn't remember whether he was the one in blackface or in the KKK robes. And then as soon as it became politically expedient for Terry McAuliffe, he embraced Ralph Northam and went to campaign with him. And he's got a guy on the ticket with him. Yeah. Mark Herring, who's running with him, attorney general, who, who admitted to wearing blackface. I mean, Terry McAuliffe's the most hypocritical, bold-faced, lying politician on the planet. And uh, this is all he knows to do. And so this is why we are surging to victory. And let me just, let me stand up for parents for a minute. Parents across Virginia have been, have been standing up in school board meetings and just asking for their schools to be open five days a week. They've been asking to have visibility in what's being taught in the curriculum. 
They've been trying to make sure that their children are being taught how to think and not what to think. And the bill that caused all that, that, that Terry McAuliffe finally came out and admitted his heart, the parents have no role and should have no role in their kids' education, was a bill that was going to allow parents to have a say about what, the, what was going to be taught to their child. And it was signed by 18 Democrats, 14 members of the Virginia Black Caucus. And so Terry McAuliffe is calling the Black Caucus members racist if this is what he's really doing. This is the most absurd thing. He's doubling and tripling down on it. And Virginia parents have had enough of it. This is why they're so ready for an outsider. They're so ready for someone who's not tied to all this political garbage, trying to divide people all the time. We are going to get taxes down. We're going to fix our schools. We're going to make our community safe. We're going to crank up our job engine. And we're going to get Virginia moving again. Glenn, I've got to ask you, yesterday, McAuliffe was very excited. Based on some indication, there was a statement that was kind of being read into by a lot of people. Is Donald Trump going to come to Virginia? He sort of indicated maybe he might. And McAuliffe was very excited about this because his whole campaign is just saying Donald Trump a thousand times in a row. There are now reports that Trump doesn't plan to come. Do you have any knowledge? Is your campaign aware of a plan for the former president to come down to Virginia or come up, I guess, from Florida to Virginia on behalf of you? And if he were to show up, would you go to a rally with him? No, there, as far as we know, there's no plans. In fact, we know where we're going to be. We're, we're on a 10-day bus tour. For that entire conversation between myself and Glenn Youngkin, running for governor in Virginia, you can go to GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. It's on demand. FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. An interesting question in male-female friendship dynamics. It sparked a spirited debate here at the show. We will share that with you and discuss it all when we come back on The Home Stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home Stretch from the Windy City of Chicago on The Guy Benson Show. I'm here today and tomorrow for the program. Sticking around for Northwestern Minnesota football over the weekend. It is definitely Chicago weather today. Breezy, cold, there was some rain. So yeah, par for the course out here. I saw this tweet last night, and it goes to a debate that I've heard before. Twitter user asking, is it possible for a man and a woman who are not otherwise related to be platonic best friends? Right, so there's no romance at all. These are just the best of friends, but it's a man and a woman, as opposed to, you know, two bros, two girlfriends. And my answer is extremely straightforward. This was not really complicated for me, which is my best friend is a woman. There is no romance. Sorry, Mary Catherine. People always sort of thought maybe there was something going on or hoping that would be the case. But alas, it was not to be. Like, oh, yeah, we have a theory. They're going to get together. No, that's not going to happen for a variety of reasons. But Mary Catherine Ham and I have been besties, you know, for years. And to me, it's completely and utterly normal. Like, I have very, very close guy friends, too, but that is a best friend situation. I'm a male, she's a female. It just, it doesn't even occur to me that that's strange or unusual or not possible or whatever. Now, you might say, well, that's because you aren't really romantically a threat to any of her significant others over the course of the friendship. Although early days, I do remember she told me, 
looking back, there was a guy she was dating right after she and I really started to become close friends. And he apparently was like threatened by me. They would say it. Little did he know it was all fine. <laughs> not don't worry, bro. Not not a thing. But. I guess it's fair to say, well, maybe the dynamic is a little bit different, right? If the guy in my case is gay and the woman is straight or whatever, maybe that's a little different than two heterosexuals, right? Male and female being best friends the same way. Uh, You know, maybe I'm open to that, that wrinkle in this conversation. But I just retweeted this tweet and I CC'd Mary Catherine. She's at MK Hammer on Twitter because to me, it's open and closed. Black and white. Of course, it's possible because it's my life. Right. That's my lived experience, as we like to say, one of the buzz phrases these days. However, when I brought this up on the call earlier, now producer Christine had some thoughts on this. So did Dan, our new technical producer and engineer. So, Dan, explain the take that you have on this based on your friendships and then your relationships. So I had an ex-girlfriend of a few years ago, and she had a guy best friend. Let's call him Bob, for example. So Bob and my ex-girlfriend would, you know, confide in each other and hang out all the time, go on walks and hikes and stuff like that. So I brought it up one time. I was like, you guys spend a lot of time together. Is, you know, is there anything like going on or ever happened? She goes, no, 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 never. I see Bob like a year ago after we'd broken up, and he goes, oh, yeah, I was in love with her the whole time. And it just caught me so off guard. And I was like, you know, I'm not a jealous person, so I didn't really care at the time. But I don't think it can happen. They're always going to kind of be those underlying feelings, I think, with someone Mm. when you're that close. I mean, unless I mean, in that case, yes, obviously, some of your suspicions, at least on his end, were true. Maybe those feelings weren't reciprocated at all by her. They're not together, are they? It's not like they got together. No, her feelings were not the same as okay so yes. tough luck for him yes tough exactly. luck for him but you know maybe one person would be hoping for something more the other not or maybe they both secretly are and then they end up together and it's happily ever after or whatever but i think that there's entirely plausible scenarios where you just have two people who are very happily romantically involved elsewhere who are of opposite sexes and who nevertheless are very extremely close if not best platonic friends Like, that dynamic is not impossible. To me, it's, setting aside my own example, it is entirely possible. Christine's not so sure either. So I'm kind of getting outvoted on this one by the straights here on the show. But Christine, explain your dilemma on this. I'm sorry. I want to be, and I've always wanted to be, that cool chick that was like, yeah, sure, Bobby, go hang out with the girls. I don't care. You know, I'm confident. No. No, I was not. Bobby had a uh, best friend that was a girl. And uh, Bobby's from Massachusetts, from the Boston area. So when he moved down here and him and I were dating, you know, friends would come and visit him. And one of the girls that he was best friends with would come and visit. And I just did not feel very comfortable with that. But I was told they're, you know, just best friends. They've been buds for all this time. Well, once Bobby and I got engaged, this girl basically just like peaced out and really didn't reach out to Bob much, even though he was reaching out. And then um, had a couple glasses of wine one summer with my mother-in-law. And she was like, oh, yeah, that girl was completely in love with Bobby. So I just I kind of agree with Dan. It's just it's very tough. And honestly, in my 20s and my teens, I had what I thought were guy friends. It didn't always turned out like they had feelings or something. And it just it didn't 
workout. So, and obviously, guy, your situation is a little different. So, I think that maybe it can happen, but I don't believe it really can. Here's my confusion, though, because you have said that Wyatt and I and Dan and also Max are your best friend. I'm a married woman and I'm a mother. That's totally different. That that just changes the thing. And to be perfectly oh, honest. No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Like you. The question here is whether a guy and a girl can be best friends and it be entirely platonic and not romantic at all. There's no special caveats or asterisks about sexuality or about age or about marital status or parental status. That's not part of this. I'm going to be perfectly honest. And Dan, I'm going to have to use you as an example right now. And I'm sorry. But like, seriously, Dan and I would not be going out on a Friday night to dinner and a bar together. And I'm calling Bobby saying, yeah, Dan and I are going out to dinner. Maybe we'll catch a movie. You know, we're just friends. It, it just wouldn't. We wouldn't do that. Bobby would not be OK with that. But if it were me, this would not happen, by the way. But if it were me, wait, Bobby, we've hung out, you and I, we've gone yeah, out to we dinner. We wouldn't go to a movie. Why not? Wait, uh, you you're, wait like now you're saying you wouldn't go to a movie with me? I'm your you best like friend. The, no, we're, no, no, that your words. I, here's the thing. You strike me as the type of person who would be constantly talking and asking questions during a movie. Oh, and I, I just, yep, I, I could not be a party to that. I'd be like, attention, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know this person. It, can we, can we vote her off the island? I can't take questions it's, mid-move it's it's not my fault that sometimes i lose track of thought bobby pauses a lot <laughs> just to stop and explain things oh i'm gonna tell you another story bobby and i were co-workers don't forget i remember and we were quote-unquote friends for a good year and a half. i was dating somebody else we were just friends for a year and a half and look yeah, how that no, look how that worked it, out no, but the thing is you're not disproving the point your anecdotes about how it hasn't worked out or has worked out in certain ways in your individual lives those are true, but it doesn't make the entire proposition impossible for others. Like, of course, there are examples where you can say, oh, we started as friends and now we're married or whatever. That's how it always goes for people who end up getting into a relationship. Typically, they start as friends in some way. That doesn't mean that a male and a female cannot be best friends and not have it go down that path. Um. Are these two people, I just think once, okay, fine. You could be best friends with uh, a male, female, you know, but once other people like relationships get in the way, I'm telling you, it doesn't work. I had, I don't have any girlfriends, none. And I have a lot of friends. Remember, <laughs> I do not have any girlfriends that have a platonic guy, best friend. I just don't, I don't. If Bobby and that girl were still close and we're still friends and we're still chatting and stuff and wanted to hang out and do stuff. Would you at some point have shut it down yes. and been like, really? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm you being, I'm you being honest. I'm being stopped honest. him from spending time with his best friend. Yes. Be because of insecurities and jealousy. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm laying it all out there. I'm being honest. Yes, I would have stopped it. Does that make you feel guilty at all? Well, now it does. I know I, I was. Why? It's be Hormones, it's, like I'm sorry, like just it, it, it happens. But we're, you're not we're all animals, you know. Like, oh, wow, come well, on. That, there's a drop. Let's let's pull that. We're Don't do all that. Animals. This is, in fact, let's let's play it at the end of the show today. As a matter of fact, 
but not everyone is attracted to everyone. Can, right? Dan, Pe- can you please step in here? Because I, I know he agrees People have with me. preferences. People have types. People are into certain people and not into others. Like, I know, Christine, this may come as a shock, but gay men are not attracted to all other men. It's like, oh, can I, can I not have a male best friend? That's an interesting question. Can I not have a male best friend? Is that male straight? Either way. Well, can I no, not have a, not can I not have a gay best no, friend? I cannot not, have a gay best friend, really. I, I'm not. I, I, I don't. I'm not sure if it's different, but I don't know if I was your spouse, if I was married to you, and you had a a, a, a guy best friend who you could potentially be a couple or something. I I don't know how much I would be ex- happy about it. Hmm. Is that wrong, Dan? Am I wrong? I don't think so. I I kind of tend to agree in that situation, but it is a hard kind of thing to to do and put yourself in that position. Maybe we need to we bring quiet. To a, uh, maybe we need quiet Wyatt in here. <laughs> quiet Wyatt, I'm being outvoted here. Quiet Wyatt, do you have a quick thought on this? Well, I think this conversation has violated several HR rules and regulations. <laughs> of course um, you so do. There's that and then also, he's I reported just think us that already. As a resident Gen Zer on this on this discussion that gender is uh, a con uh, a construct of the patriarchy <laughs> and we, we we shouldn't be labeling male or female <laughs> yeah this, this is also that we we haven't considered the equity in any of this which is really on us if you think about it we're also out of time maybe we can do a a poll on this should we do a twitter poll on this at guy benson show yes is I, it possible I and i just want to put it out there because bobby listens to this segment every single day Mr. Bob, you are not going out as a friend with any other woman besides your wife. I'm putting it out there because if you do, there will be problems. Is that is that did, did I make myself clear? Do you think I? Oh, I think you did. And that's even without any booze in the system. So I, I think the message has been received. I also think that you might actually win this Twitter poll. You always lose them when we do these things, which is why I'm reluctant. I just think it's I think it's possible. But perhaps I'll be proven wrong by the people. Although, again, the majority does not dictate whether something is possible for others. But let's put that up there, Wyatt. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter, is this possible for people, yes or no? To have a best friend, opposite sex, let's say heterosexual or, you know, where the sexualities would align. Is that possible? Yes or no? And just be friends. Fully platonic, no romance or anything else. We'll put it up there. We'll see what the people say on the Internet, because the Internet's never wrong. Out of time. Here in Chicago, I'm coming up on Special Report tonight, 6 p.m. hour Eastern Time on Special Report. We'll see you there. Back here tomorrow on the radio, it's the Guy Benson Show, where... But you're not necessarily animals! Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. 
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.